So we'll begin at verse 1 of Job 25. Then answered Bildad the Shuite and said, Dominion and fear are with him. He maketh peace in his high places. Is there any number of his armies? And upon whom doth not his light arise? How then can man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? Behold, even to the moon, and it shineth not. Yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man that is a worm, and the son of man which is a worm. So in contrast to the high and holy one of heaven, the writer here says man, he's like a worm crawling in the dirt. Uh, interesting verse 4, how then can man be justified with God? And the second part of that verse, or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? I uh, was in debate about five years ago with a Muslim on the subject of is Jesus God? And that was the title allocated. And in a question and answer time after I'd spoken, a Muslim said to me, you claim that Jesus Christ was totally sinless. But it says in Job 25, how can he be clean? that is born of a woman. And what a great opening it gave me to talk about the virgin birth. Because of course, because the Lord was born of the virgin, he was not of the line of Adam, therefore he did not enter this world condemned by original sin. And I was able to explain that to that Muslim and explain that he was born sinless, he lived sinless, and that qualified him to be the Lamb of God without blemish and spot who was able to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. That's just a little aside for that. And then in Galatians chapter 3, I want to read just verse 16. You would be aware that Paul's letter to the Galatians was addressing a group of people who basically were plaguing him everywhere he went. There were these people going around claiming to be Christian and preaching their version of the gospel. Uh, this was a group of people known as the Judaizers. And they were saying, yes, it's important to have faith in Christ, but it was faith plus religious ritual. In their case, they were harping back to uh, the Old Testament and the requirement for religious ritual. And they were saying, in order to be saved, you've got to mix faith plus works. And Paul addresses this in this letter to the Galatians in chapter 1. He says that gospel is no gospel. And he says it's under the anathema of God. And in Galatians 3 verse 16 he writes this. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, you'll have noticed that in both the chapter from Job and also in this verse from Galatians, reference is made to justified. So, what does it mean to be justified? How then can man be justified with God? Well, early in my Christian life, I came across a very helpful verse in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 1. It says there, If there be a controversy between men, 
and they come unto judgment, that the judges may judge them, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. To justify someone means to declare that they're innocent of any guilt, that the law has no claim against them, and there is no penalty for them to pay. That's what it means to be justified. It's a legal verdict by a judge that says the law has no claim against you, there's no penalty to pay. And in contrast to that, it says there that the wicked will be condemned. And what that means is, you're not innocent, you are guilty, the law has a claim against you, and there is a penalty to pay. And again, it is a pronouncement, it is a verdict. And we're going to see that Rome rejects that truth about what justification is. In their eyes, justification, in fact, is a process. And uh, we'll come to that uh, shortly. Now, what are the reasons for the Reformation? Well, I could perhaps say that there were social and political reasons for the Reformation. Uh, I don't think we understand fully the, the grip that Rome and the papacy had across Europe in those days uh, in the realms of social life and spiritual life and political life. Uh, for 12 centuries up until uh, the 20th century, in fact, uh, until 1978, every time a new pope was installed, there was a kind of crowning ceremony built into the uh, installation. And at that point, he was crowned with a three-tier silver tiara. And as that was placed on his head, the presiding archbishop would say, Receive the tiara adorned with three crowns, and know that thou art the father of princes and kings, ruler of the world, the vicar of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. So that meant that according to this crowning of him, he had universal power in the temporal realm and in the spiritual realm. And Rome wasn't afraid to flex its muscles, particularly in the uh, political realm. I think there's a record of something like 64 kings uh, and princes who were deposed uh, because uh, the papacy didn't like uh, the path that they were following. And uh, during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, the then Pope, uh, basically deprived her of any authority and also absolved any of her nobles who had sworn allegiance to her. Uh, so they, they would have loved to have got rid of Queen Elizabeth I, but in the providence of God, uh, that didn't happen. Uh, now, since 1978, the uh, popes do not receive the tiara, this three-tier crown. It's probably in cold storage somewhere in the Vatican. But just because they don't use it now, doesn't mean that they have renounced the claims that were made when it was used. <clears throat> These are claims not renounced. They're simply not asserted. Because Rome is a good master of knowing the temperature of the political and spiritual waters. And of course, after Vatican II, they were presenting a much more uh, amiable uh, appearance to the world. And so that probably accounts for why the tiara was put in a back room somewhere. But given the right circumstances, I have no doubt that it would be brought out again. So there probably were uh, these uh, social and political reasons that set the scene for the Reformation. But in truth, I think the main reason was uh, theological and doctrinal. There was great dissatisfaction amongst many people 
with the so-called salvation that was being proclaimed by Rome. And Martin Luther, who of course was a, a, a priest and a friar and so on, and he was particularly distressed by uh, one practice that was prevalent then, and that was the sale of indulgences. Uh, a man called Tetzel was traveling around Europe. He was selling these letters of indulgence, which was if you paid money, you would get a, a, a letter which would basically absolve you from temporal punishment uh, for sins that you would commit. And uh, in many ways, these people thought it was simply a license to sin. They could go out and sin and then wave this in the face of God. It's okay, I've got my indulgence. Well, Luther did not like this. And so on the 31st of October, uh, 1517, he nailed what are known as his 95 theses to the door uh, of the uh, church in Wittenberg. Now, he wasn't vandalizing the door. It was a door that was used as a public notice board uh, and so on. So he, he nailed those. Uh, if you don't know what a thesis is, perhaps modern terminology might be he had 95 bullet points uh, that he, he listed and so on. And these were addressing this whole matter of indulgences. And he really wanted to open up a debate on this subject. And in the sort of prologue to his 95 theses, he wrote this. Out of love and zeal for truth and the desire to bring it to light, the following theses will be publicly discussed at Wittenberg under the chairmanship of the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts in Sacred Theology and regularly appointed lecturer on these subjects at that place. So this was the start of it and as John has already mentioned, the light shone in on Luther that a man is declared righteous, he's pronounced righteous, and you live by faith. It is not a question of living by following rules and regulations and all of the religious ritual prescribed by the Church of Rome. Uh, when I was a youngster, my parents diligently sent me to Sunday school, and there I was encouraged to learn the shorter catechism as it was known. And uh, I can remember the first question and the answer, and even people who never learned that catechism seemed to know it. And the first question is, what is man's chief end? And man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, once you go beyond question one, I'm in big trouble. I don't remember anything at all. But anyhow, question 33 is this. What is justification? Answer. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So that's what it means to be justified. God pardons us and accepts us only because of the righteousness of Christ which is imputed, which is credited to our account and it is not received through following rules and rituals and all the rest of it. It is received through the vehicle, through the conduit of faith alone. Uh, the comments in the Catechism go on to say, We can do nothing of ourselves to deserve it. The cause of it is not our own goodness. Uh, well, this understanding that had come to Luther, uh, it caused a bit of a discussion and a debate and a fallout between him and a contemporary called Erasmus. Uh, Erasmus believed that we had unfettered free will uh, and so he wrote a book called uh, The Freedom of the Will. 
uh, and that was in 1524. And then the following year, Luther wrote uh, a book in response to that called The Bondage of the Will. Luther believed that we had no ability whatsoever. Yes, we had free will to a degree, but it was always biased in a certain direction, in the direction of sin, because of the state in which we were born as a result of Adam's fall. Now, I said justification is a pronouncement. It's a legal verdict. It's not a process. And this is best contrasted when you read uh, one of the uh, anathemas in the Council of Trent, and I'll be coming to Trent in more detail shortly, but in it they said this on justification. If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of its increase, let him be anathema. Rome says that justification is preserved and can be increased through our contribution. But you and I as Bible-believing Christians reject that. Obviously we reject that. Because our justification is based solely alone on the righteousness of Christ. We can add nothing to it. We can take nothing away. It is a perfect righteousness. So you can see this Justification is the great dividing line, it's the fault line between the Biblical Gospel and between the Roman Catholic Gospel. Uh, I have a book in my office called The Great Reformation by R. Tudor Jones. And uh, going back to these indulgences, he writes this. It was pastoral concern that moved Luther to act. People had come to make their confession to him, but showed no signs of sincere repentance for their sins. On the contrary, they produced copies of indulgences that they had bought and obviously thought of them as licenses to sin with impunity. Luther declined to grant them absolution. So these people were coming supposedly to confession and they were just trotting out things and saying, you don't need to give me any penance or anything like that, I've got this indulgence. And that did not impress Luther whatsoever. Number 36 of his 95 Theses says this, any truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt, even without letters of indulgence. He rejected this notion that you could obtain some sort of forgiveness with these letters of indulgence. <clears throat> so how does Rome view forgiveness of sin and acceptance with God? Well, their 1994 catechism is the most recent uh, statement of all that they believe. And in paragraph 1473, under the punishment of sin, it says this. The forgiveness of sin and restoration of communion with God entail the remission of the eternal punishment of sin, but temporal punishment of sin remains. So they immediately, in relation to the punishments of sin, they have an eternal punishment and a temporal punishment. Well, what's this temporal punishment? Well, again, I have a a pocket Catholic dictionary by a Jesuit called John Harden. And temporal punishment is defined like this. The penalty that God in his justice inflicts either on earth or in purgatory for sins, even though already forgiven as to guilt. So even though your sins are forgiven as to guilt, Rome teaches you're still going to be punished with temporal punishment. How can I give an example? 
Well, let's say for the sake of argument that I'm your school teacher and John here has been misbehaving. And so I say to John, you need to go outside and you need to write out 100 times, I must not annoy my teacher. So he gets to the back and he's about to go out and he turns and he says, teacher, I am really, really sorry. Will you forgive me? And I say, of course I'll forgive you, John. But you still have to go outside and write out your hundred lines. So out he goes, and he's writing away, and he has written out 50, 50 times, and then all of a sudden, he dies. So there's 50 lines still outstanding. So what happens there? Well, he has to go to purgatory, and he has to suffer in order to pay off the outstanding temporal punishment. Even though I've forgiven him, there was still temporal punishment, and he had only discharged part of it, but not all of it. So he has to suffer in purgatory, and friends here are still alive, they can pay for extra masses and so on, in order to get him, speed his journey through purgatory. That is Roman Catholic forgiveness, which is not biblical forgiveness. God says, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sins from you. And God has blotted out our sins. They have been soaked up through Christ dying on the cross for us. But anyhow, this whole uh, sacramental system uh, that had been built up by Rome and these idea of indulgence and so on, these had basically snuffed out the light of the true gospel. It's, it's no wonder that age is known as the Dark Ages. So what was the, the system that Rome was setting before the people for them to supposedly get forgiveness and supposedly contribute to earning uh, acceptance with God? Well, I, I liken the Church of Rome to, uh, back home I would say a spiritual chemist, but maybe you would say a spiritual pharmacist, uh, but you know what I mean. <coughs> But when, uh, when somebody is born, they're born with a problem, and it's original sin. Our Rome's understanding of original sin is different from what we understand. We believe that when Adam sinned, spiritually he died. Because Paul tells us that he and uh, all the descendants since then are dead in trespasses and sins. We're physically alive, but spiritually dead. But Rome says, no, what happened was when Adam sinned, he lost this supernatural substance and power within him called grace. And so what needs to happen is that grace needs to be infused uh, right from birth and continually throughout the person's life. So that means you, you go then, you take the child for, for baptism, and there it supposedly receives initial justifying grace. So the baby's in, in a state of grace. But then, of course, as it starts to grow up and reach the early teenage years, it starts to engage in things that are sinful. And so that initial justifying grace has uh, dissipated, and so it has to go for confirmation. This is a, a ceremony where a, a bishop will slap the person on the head and lay hands on them, and there they supposedly receive strengthening grace. So that's going to tide them over for another while. But then as they begin to become more into the later teenage years and so on, and uh, they really are into sin in a pretty bad way, so they, the strengthening grace has gone, 
And so they need to go through the sacrament of penance or forgiveness. And there they supposedly receive reconciling grace. They're really young adults now, and even confession is not sufficient to keep the grace level maintained. And so on a regular basis they have to come to the sacrifice of the Mass. And there they come to the altar in a Roman Catholic Church. And uh, the sacrifice of Calvary is supposedly perpetuated, and the elements are supposedly uh, changed into the body, blood, soul, divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ when the priest says the words of consecration. What a contrast, because when you and I meet around the Lord's table, we eat bread and wine, and that's all they are. They are symbols that remind us of Calvary, and we are there to give thanks for the forgiveness that we possess. Whereas the Roman Catholic comes to their altar to this sacrifice in order to obtain forgiveness. And so they are looking for pardoning grace when they come to the Mass. And so they do this all right throughout their life. And now they're entering the twilight years. And perhaps the, the end is near. And so there's one final sacrament that, and ritual that has to be performed, and that is extreme unction. It used to be known as the last rites. And there they supposedly receive what I would call last ditch grace. Uh, and so there's another top up. Uh, but even after that ritual, the priest will they say, and then say to them, well, it's now between you and your God. There is absolutely no assurance that all this is going to get that person into heaven. The Roman Catholic system of salvation is a bit to me like a game of snakes and ladders. You're doing very well one, and then down again. You've got to get your grace topped up. Up you go again, and then down again. And it's continually like that all throughout your life. Rome speaks of actual grace, efficacious grace, habitual grace, justifying grace, sacramental grace, sanctifying grace, sufficient grace. You might say good gracious, all those forms of grace. <clears throat> the Bible certainly speaks of grace. And this, again, was something that, as a young believer, I, I tried to get a handle on. What exactly is grace? And there was a very good article in a Christian newspaper called the Evangelical Times. And it was published back in 1998. And I just want to read this short article because I think... It encapsulates perfectly, well, for me anyhow, what true grace is as opposed to the false grace conveyed through sacraments in Rome. Many think of grace as something actually imparted <coughs> to the believer. That is, they think of it as a gift when it is in fact the act of giving, an act which in turn reveals the character of the giver. Grace is that which leads God to deal graciously with his people, an attribute of God, rather than something he parts with when he gives. There are some who distort the pivotal truth of what grace really is. They claim that God instills a commodity called grace into people's hearts through various means, rituals, observances, sacraments. Thus grace becomes a gift, a reward for man's obedience and good intentions. And by the grace received, they are enabled to please God and earn salvation. People are saved by grace, they declare, but their particular brand of grace is a reward gift, its ultimate cause lying in their own actions or works. 
The grace of which scripture speaks therefore is always and only found in God and emphasizes that salvation is utterly of God's free mercy bestowed on undeserving sinners who were chosen in Christ before time began. Now, to summarize that, I would say this. Grace is not an actual something given by God. Grace is God actually giving something. When we are graciously born again in the Spirit, saved, converted, God pardons us, He justifies us, He sanctifies us in the sense of setting us apart unto Himself, He adopts us into His family, and He graciously gives us the indwelling Holy Spirit. That is the gift that He gives. And all of these are gracious gifts. They are gifts of grace, if you like. Whereas Rome thinks that through the sacraments performed by her priests, this invisible power and commodity is infused, instilled into somebody, and then that makes them able to do things which are meritorious in the sight of God. You know, if a Roman Catholic wakes up one morning and says, boy, I'm not in a state of grace, I need to get back into favor with God. I'll tell you what, I'll go next door and cut their grass. Well, if he's not in a state of grace, according to Rome, he cuts the grass, it will count for nothing. So what he has to do is he has to go, first of all, to the chapel, make his confession, receive grace, and then he can go and cut his neighbor's grass, and that will then count favorably in the sight of God. That's what Rome. And of course, you can only get this grace through the priests. And of course, they can only get it from Mary, who is the mediatrix of all graces. And so the Roman Catholic from birth right through to death and beyond is in the grip of Holy Mother Church, according to what she teaches. In that book, The Great Reformation, it says this, All in all, the Protestant Reformation was as fundamental a transformation as Christianity has ever experienced, and for individuals, as in the case of Luther himself, it meant rediscovery of a gracious God and a saving Christ. It is this spiritual principle that lies at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. A gracious God and a saving Christ, not a sacramental system, uh, produced by a spiritual pharmacist known as the Roman Catholic religion. Well, Rome, of course, wasn't too well pleased by Mr. Luther, and uh, they excommunicated him in January 1521, and then a few months later they invited him to the Diet of Worms, as it's known, and there they invited him to recant and uh, disassociate himself from what he had been saying and writing. And uh, I want to read his reply. Uh, it's taken from uh, Fox's book of Mart Martyrs. And it's a little bit in quaint English, but you'll be able to follow it. So he had been asked to recant. And he says this, Considering your sovereign majesty and your honours require a plain answer, this I say and profess as resolutely as I may, that, I that if I be not convinced by testimonies of the scriptures, for I believe not the Pope, neither his general councils, which I've heard many times, and have been contrary to themselves. My conscience is so bound and captive in these scriptures and the word of God that I will not nor may not revoke any manner of thing, considering it is not godly or lawful to do anything against conscience. Hereupon I stand and rest. I have not what else to do. God have mercy upon me.
So that, I believe, is the main reason for the Reformation. It was theological, it was doctrinal, it was the discovery of the truth of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And that, of course, was anathema to Rome. So how did they react to this? Well, they kind of reverted to form. In previous centuries and so on, if there was a challenge uh, that the church was facing, they convened a council of all the leading dignitaries, the Pope and the bishops and the archbishops. And so this is what they did in the immediate aftermath of Luther's uh, Reformation. In 1545, they convened the Council of Trent. Uh, it lasted for just a week under 18 years. It met for 25 sessions. It spanned the reign of three different popes. And basically they looked and examined every aspect of teaching concerned with the Roman Catholic religion. So they were looking at what constituted the scriptures, and of course they then included extra books called the Apocrypha. They looked at and defined the importance of tradition for Rome. The Bible and sacred tradition make up a single deposit of the Word of God. So the Bible alone is not sola scripture where Rome is concerned. Uh, they defined original sin, which I've already explained is not what the Bible teaches. They affirmed free will. In other words, they felt that uh, man was wounded when Adam sinned, but he wasn't dead. There was still a flicker of light which could be found through the ceremonies of the church. And they defined all of the teachings of their sacraments. They affirmed baptismal regeneration. And they affirmed the transubstantiation element of the Mass and so on. And so in Trent they codified all that they believed. But not only did they codify, they also condemned. In other words, if you didn't agree with what they had just codified, they listed all of these condemnations against you. Let me just give one. If anyone denies that in the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist are contained truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and consequently the whole Christ, but says that he is in it only as in a sign or figure or force, let him be anathema. So if you don't believe in this miraculous transubstantiation, then you are under the curse of God, uh, according to Rome. I debated uh, on television a few years ago with a Roman Catholic uh, spokesperson on the subject of the Mass. Um, he was talking about the transubstantiation, this miraculous interchange of these elements uh, into the body, blood, soul, divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was labeling it as a miracle. So I said to him, uh, here, uh, in the Bible we have a record of lots of miracles. I said, all the miracles in the Bible could be verified with at least one or maybe more of our natural senses. Uh, you know, when the wine was, the water was changed into wine, well, they could see a change and they could taste a change. Uh, when someone was raised from the dead, you could say that they were dead. I said, can you give me an example of where a miracle occurred that could not be verified by our natural senses? He couldn't do it. And I said, you're asking people to believe that the bread and the wine have miraculously changed? Even though they look like bread and wine, even though they taste like bread and wine? And he couldn't answer it. They are asking people to believe this, and it cannot be verified, unlike all the other miracles and so on. So, 
this was Trent, they uh, codified and they condemned, and then at the end of it they came up with the Tridentine Creed, which was a sort of summary of all that was enshrined in the various documents and so on. And basically, uh, anyone wanting to become a Roman Catholic would have to say, you know, this is my uh, subordinate standard of faith, if you like. And it rides off by saying, this true Catholic faith, without which no one can be saved, I do at this present freely confess and sincerely hold. So their first reaction was to codify all their beliefs and then condemn anybody who didn't believe them. But then they went on to what I call countering and culling. They established a group whose sworn aim was to counter the Reformation. And this, of course, was the setting up of the Society of Jesus, better known as the Jesuits. Uh, and they were formed in 1538 by Ignatius Loyola. And their stated aim was to overturn this Reformation. And I can tell you that aim has not changed. Today, uh, people misguidedly think of the Jesuits as being kind of super spiritual and all the rest of it. But their state of aim is still the same. They're highly involved in education and so on. They like to get people when they're young and indoctrinate them as well as educate them as well. So they set that up. There was the countering movement, the Jesuits. But then there was also culling. Well, I'm sure you know what culling is. That's where you kill things. Uh, I know back home they, they have badger culls. Uh, one of the farmers playing badgers for some particular disease uh, amongst animals and so badgers are called, I think in Canada they may be called seed pups or something. Uh, not very pleasant anyhow. But Rome set about culling people and to do that they again went back to previous methods employed and that was the Inquisition. In earlier centuries, in the 13th century, they had culled a group called the Albigenses who they didn't like because of their teachings. Uh, and then, at the time of the Reformation, they put to death something like 900,000 Waldenses, who were uh, people who were uh, embracing the Reformation truths and were living in the north of Italy. Uh, and then in France in 1572, there was a great culling of people known as the Huguenots. It was known as the St. Bartholomew's. Day massacre. Uh, Pope Gregory the Thirteenth commemorated that great massacre by striking a medal uh, with his image on one side and an image of a, a husband and wife being killed on the other side. Uh, so there you had this countering and culling. That uh, was another reaction to the Reformation. And then there would be what I would call censoring. Uh, in previous times, Rome had censored what books, if any, the people were allowed to read. Of course, not many of them were literate, so it wasn't really a problem. But they reinforced this at the time of the Reformation, that people were not allowed to read uh, literature that would be uh, exposing the errors of Rome. And they certainly didn't allow people to read the scriptures and so on. Now, they have relaxed the rules a lot, particularly since Vatican II. And people are now allowed, allowed to uh, read the Bible. They're allowed to read it, but they're not allowed to interpret it. The only people who can interpret it are the magisterium, the Pope, and the bishops. And they pass those things down to the priests, who then tell the people what the 
magisterium state. So the ultimate authority in Rome, it's not the Bible, it's not sacred tradition, it is the magisterium. The magisterium tell the people what the Bible means and they tell the people what constitutes sacred tradition. So that was uh, the Council of Trent. And there have been other reactions then uh, later uh, on, back in the 19th century, uh, in 1869, another great council was convened called Vatican I. One of the first things they did in Vatican I was they reaffirmed all the teachings of the Council of Trent. Uh, and uh, as well as that, they gave the Pope added powers. They basically declared him infallible when he was speaking on matters of faith and doctrine. So he's infallible, and they basically made him untouchable. Because this is what they said, the Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. That's some power. I'm sure Donald Trump would like some sort of power like that, where he can exercise power unhindered. But it doesn't work that way. But when it comes to the Vatican, certainly they do have that. So that was Vatican I, and then in the lifetime of some of us here, there was another great council, and that was Vatican II. It was convened in 1962 under the smiling Pope John XXIII. And yet again, they reaffirmed Trent. This sacred council accepts loyally the venerable faith of our ancestors who are in the glory of heaven, or who are yet being purified after their death, in other words, their purgatory, and it proposes again the decrees of the Council of Trent. I've heard liberal so-called Protestants and others say, Trent doesn't apply anymore. They are in deep ignorance of the reality. Trent has always been reaffirmed in Vatican I and Vatican II, and those condemnations still stand that were in uh, this uh, into Trent. So what was the real purpose of Vatican II? Well, it was really a, a modern PR marketing exercise. It was really a realization that Rome needed to change its outward appearance and image to make it more seductive to the professing Christian world. Uh, and so they set about uh, doing a makeover, if you like, and presenting themselves as having changed. And whilst the outward wrapping paper might have changed, what was at the core, what was at the heart, the doctrines, not one iota had changed. But they did it very successfully. And so if they were going to reverse the Reformation, they were going to need the help of liberal ecumenical so-called Protestants. And that's what I want to come to now, the reversal of the Reformation. When I was first saved back in 1984, if I went into a, a Christian bookshop to get a book on the cults, invariably Roman Catholicism would have been listed as one of the cults. But you go in today, you will not find that. And you even suggest such a thing. Uh, oh, what? You would not be well received in many quarters. So, Rome needed the help of individuals and initiatives to keep this reversal of the Reformation going. 
And I want to give you some examples of how they have been helped in that respect. Back in 1981, a group known as Arctic was set up, the uh, Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission. This was cooperation between the Anglican Church and the Roman Catholic Church, where they <coughs> put forward uh, theologians and they met together and they examined uh, various aspects of uh, religion uh, and they put forward papers uh, detailing the conclusions that they had arrived to. And one of them, of course, dealt with the matter of salvation. And this is what they said. We are agreed that this is not an area where any remaining differences of theological interpretation or ecclesiological emphasis, either within or between our communions, can justify our continuing separation. We believe that our two communions are agreed on the essential aspects of the doctrine of salvation and on the church's role within it. So basically these people said, there's no reason for us to be separated. You know, and we really could actually come together. However, a few other issues have arisen which have prevented this coming together. Uh, things like the ordination of women priests. Uh, things like how each of these groups, the Roman Catholic Church and the Anglican Church, uh, react to the uh, gay issue, if I could put it that way. So they, they haven't fully come together yet. But they're basically working as if they have, because last year, uh, Pope Francis and Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, they held uh, ceremonies in England and then in Rome, where they basically commissioned groups of bishops in twos, a Roman Catholic bishop and an Anglican bishop, and they dispatched these people all over the world, and these people are supposedly going forward to evangelize. Uh, I would love to know what their understanding of evangelism is. But anyhow, you can take it that the Anglican Church, the majority in it, are fully persuaded that they would be able, if other issues could be dealt with, to unite with Rome, and so the Reformation could be reversed. I would love to know, he doesn't know about it because he's in the glory, but what Bishop J.C. Ryle would think of it all. Uh, he was such a, a, an incredible man. Anyhow, Archic is one uh, vehicle for reversing the Reformation. And then back in March 1994, uh, there was a document that came out called ECT, the Evangelicals and Catholics Together, the Christian Mission for the Third Millennium. And again, a bit like Archic, uh, this was drawn up by a supposed evangelical, Charles Colson, and a Roman Catholic called Richard Newhouse. And uh, they met and they produced all this document. There's various sections to it. And they said this, we affirm together, all who accept Christ as Lord and Savior are brothers and sisters in Christ, evangelicals and Catholics are brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, if that was true then, all the missionaries, uh, all the Protestant missionaries in Roman Catholic countries could all be brought home to base, no need for them to be there whatsoever. But what a loose definition. All who accept Christ as Lord and Savior, because Matthew 7, uh, 21, the Lord says, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And in that document, how did they reach this agreement? Well, they, they had to have a consensus. And so basically what they did was they agreed that there were two possible ways you could become a Christian. One was the evangelical understanding, which is a work of the Holy Spirit and convicting you of your sin and converting you to Christ. 
And then, of course, there was the Roman Catholic understanding, which was basically baptismal regeneration. And so, whether you have experienced an evangelical conversion or you've been baptized, you're a brother and sister of Christ, and you should be allowed the freedom to choose which religious community you're going to continue your growth as a Christian. So, it was a terrible document, and what was even more frightening was some of the people, supposedly evangelical, who signed it. Uh, Charles Colson, I mentioned, uh, who was the founder of Prison Ministries. Uh, Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ signed it. Uh, he, a few years later, uh, received the Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion. This is a, a prize awarded annually uh, for people who have uh, helped religion to progress, in other words, to blend together. It's not the Christian religion, it's to sort of bring all religions together. Uh, it's worth about a million dollars. And uh, Bill Bright, he chose to receive his check in a Roman Catholic chapel in Rome. And it was presented to him by Dr. Idris Cassidy, who was a Catholic uh, primate who was charged with overseeing the preparation of the ECT document to make sure that there was nothing in it that would fly in the face of Roman Catholic teaching. But probably the biggest shock for the evangelical world was the fact that J.I. Packer signed the ECT agreement. Mr. Packer was challenged uh, about why he had signed it and so he wrote uh, an article in defense of why he had signed it. And in it he said, we need to recognize that good Roman Catholics are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, I would actually take exactly the opposite viewpoint. And I would say that a bad Roman Catholic might possibly be my brother and sister in Christ. Bad in the sense that they reject the false teachings of Rome that they maybe haven't yet left. But for him to do it, but you know, since that he has also engaged in all sorts of ecumenical endeavours. He actually came to Ireland uh, a few years after the ECT uh, document to promote the Irish version of ECT. And he had two meetings in Belfast and then two meetings down in Dublin. I went to the two meetings in Belfast and I went to one of the ones in Dublin. He shared a platform with Father Pat Collins, a Vincentian priest. It was heartbreaking to, to watch this man. But at the double meeting that I went to, J.I. Packard gave a very good definition of justification. And when it came to Q&A, I was able to get a question in. And my question was this, Dr. Packard, you have given a very good biblical definition of justification. A, can you confirm that the Roman Catholic signatories to this document agree with you? And B, I see there are some of them in the room here. Will they now stand up and affirm that they agree with you? Well, he didn't confirm that they did, and they didn't stand up. And that was basically it. Uh, it was sad in the extreme. Anyhow, Arctic ECT. And then in 1999, on the 31st of October, note the date, 31st of October, which of course marks Luther's nailing of Assisi's, we have the joint declaration on the doctrine of justification between the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran World Federation. The Lutherans, on the anniversary of Luther's nailing his theses, were signing this declaration on the doctrine of justification of the throne. And in the document it says this, a consensus and basic truths of the doctrine of justification exists between Lutherans and Catholics. 
The mutual condemnations of former times do not apply to the Catholic and Lutheran doctrines of justification as they are presented in the joint declaration. So something must have changed in this joint declaration for them to be able to agree. Well, I can tell you that Rome didn't change. Rome never changes. So, uh, there we have these uh, Archic, ECT, the Lutheran uh, Declaration. Another vehicle for reversing the Reformation you may have come across is called the Alpha Course. Uh, this is a, an initiative that stems from an Anglican Charismatic Church in London called Holy Trinity Brompton. Uh, the main figurehead of it is a guy called Mickey Gumbel. Uh, and people ask me, well, what's wrong with Alpha? And I say, well, the Church of Rome endorses it. Do I need to say any more? Uh, because the reality is that Alpha, when it comes to detail, it's what I call skeletal. It's a very uh, thinly worded uh, statement as to what it means to be a Christian. <clears throat> and of course in Alpha, you go through the first three lessons by that stage, you probably have made your decision to become a Christian. And now they get to the really exciting bit, number four, which is the Holy Spirit weekend, uh, which is where they all go away and they're going to call the Holy Spirit down in the hope that they're going to have manifestations and all sorts of things. Uh, Nicky Gumbel, who's in charge, he was affected or infected by the so-called Toronto Blessing, which probably explains why the uh, weekend, the Holy Spirit weekend, is what it is. And there was a TV series back in the UK where they followed 10 or 12 people who were going through it. And when it came to the Holy Spirit weekend, you saw a wee bit of an introduction given by Nicky Gumbel, and then the cameras had to take themselves away. And then they interviewed people coming out, and they were really quite afraid and shocked by whatever had gone on in there. And the reality is that you had a room full of people, probably few, if any, were converted, and yet they were invoking the Holy Spirit to come and manifest himself and all sorts of things. It, it really was quite occultic, and that is the reality of what this thing is. But anyhow, Alpha is promoted in Protestant churches and Catholic churches all across the world. They've held big uh, meetings where hierarchy of both Protestants and Catholics have been there. There was one held in Vancouver uh, a number of years ago, and they're held in South America and all across Europe. The leading advocate for Alpha in the Catholic Church is a priest called Father Raniero Cantalamessa. Now this is no ordinary priest. This is a papal preacher. In other words, he preaches to the popes. He's top notch. And he and Nicky are like this. Uh, and back in uh, 2000 and uh, something, uh, he arranged for uh, Nicky Gumbel to meet the then Pope John Paul II. And in the wake of it, uh, Nicky Gumbel said this, it was such a great honour to be presented to Pope John Paul II, who has done so much to promote evangelization around the world. My friends, Rome does not truly evangelize. She puts forward her understanding of the evangel, but it's another gospel which is no gospel. Uh, Nicky Gumbel in 2012, every two years Rome uh, holds the International Eucharistic Congress and they hold it in different cities around the world. Well in 2012 it was in Dublin, in Ireland, and Nicky Gumbel was a guest speaker at this Eucharistic Congress and he was talking about our common baptismal faith. 
Because you see, baptism is the meeting point uh, for us all to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Even Vatican II said that Protestants who have been properly baptized are in communion, albeit imperfect, with the Pope of Rome. So did you know if you've been baptized as a believer, you're in some sort of communion with the Pope of Rome? So you can take that home with you tonight now. So you have these initiatives, and then, unfortunately, there are many individuals who have contributed to the reversal of the Reformation. Billy Graham, in the late 1940s, he said, the greatest threats to Christianity are Mohammedism, Communism, and Roman Catholicism. And then for the next 60 or 70 years, he has backtracked on all of that. He went to Russia and said, well, I don't see a problem for believers. No less a person than Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, it took him to task for making such a statement. As far as Islam's concerned, in a TV interview, he said, we're a lot closer to Islam than we think we are. How could we be possibly closer to a religion that denies the deity and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ? The two planks upon which our salvation are based. And yet he says we're a lot closer. And when it comes to Roman Catholicism, in the early 1950s, he always had Roman Catholic representation in his crusades. Now don't get me wrong, I know a few people who have been saved at Billy Graham Crusades, but basically that's in spite of what was going on, not because of it. It was the Word of God and the Spirit of God that converted them. But Billy Graham always insisted in Catholic participation, and if someone from a Catholic background went forward to make their decision, they were then sent back to a Catholic church. They were not told to leave it and go to a Bible-based church. So Billy Graham certainly has been one. Uh, I mentioned J.I. Packer, I mentioned Charles Colson. I have to say this, uh, even though he's from Northern Ireland, and C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was basically a Roman Catholic in all but name. The main influences spiritually upon C.S. Lewis were J.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien was an absolute devout Roman Catholic. And C.S. Lewis, he was certainly a theist, but I have severe doubts that he really understood what Christianity was all about. He believed that uh, there were three rituals which spread the Christ life to us. This is what he wrote. There are three things that spread the Christ life to us. Baptism, belief, and that mysterious action which different Christians call by different names. Holy Communion, the Mass, the Lord's Supper. So Lewis felt that these rituals spread Christ's life to us. He believed that the Mass and the Lord's Supper were just one and the same, which I've already explained they are not. He believed in purgatory. And he believed that people from other religions could be saved didn't have to be Christ alone. So, as I say, C.S. Lewis, I know he's very popular amongst many people, but sadly I have to say that he has been used to reverse the Reformation. The litmus test is, uh, I wrote a couple of books, I wouldn't expect them to be on sale in the bookshops attached to Catholic chapels, but the books of C.S. Lewis are readily available in such outlets. And that's it. Uh, I mentioned Father Canto Lamessa. Back in 2015, he was the guest preacher 
at the opening of the General Synod of the Church of England. In the presence of the Queen and Prince Philip, he was the preacher. Uh, the previous uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, Roland Williams, in 2008, he visited the shrine at Lourdes, and uh, a, Roman, or a Protestant man wrote, Lourdes represents everything about Roman Catholicism that the Protestant Reformation rejected, including apparitions, mariolatry, and the veneration of saints. At a time when our country is crying out for clear biblical leadership, it is nothing short of tragic that our supposedly Protestant Archbishop is behaving as little more than a papal puppet. I can't understand these Anglicans because when they are ordained, they have to say the Bible is my supreme standard of faith and then what are known as the 39 articles of faith are supposed to be their subordinate standard of faith. And number 12, just for example, the Romish doctrine concerning purgatory, pardons, worshipping and adoration as well of images as of relics and also invocation of saints is a fond thing vainly invented and grounded upon no warranty of scripture but rather repugnant to the word of God. And uh, also they go on to uh, say what uh, a fable uh, transubstantiation is. And yet these men, when they're ordained, they say yes we subscribe to that. And then they get into the pulpit and they basically shred what they claim to believe. Lots and lots of initiatives have been reversing the Reformation. And uh, I could tell you lots more, but I think you get the gist. I'll give you one more example. Rick Warren, well known. Uh, he was interviewed some years ago on a Catholic TV network. And he was asked this question, what is your secret to reaching people every day, every week, not only in your writing, but when you speak? What is it? What is this communication gift, if you will, if you could decode, because a lot of preachers would like to know? Answer, well, the main thing is love always reaches people. Authenticity, humility. Pope Francis is the perfect example of this. He is doing everything right, you see. People will listen to what we say if they like what they see. And as our new Pope, he was very, very symbolic in, you know, his first Mass with people with AIDS. So there you are. Rick Warren reckons the Pope is our Pope. I did say that would be the last example, but I'll give you one more. The word, the word of faith people, the health and wealth people, the name it, the claim it, the blab it, the ground it people. Uh, probably the best known, still alive, Kenneth and Gloria Copeland. Uh, I, I posted a video just recently, some years ago, Gloria Copeland said, they can control the weather, you know. Uh, Kenneth's the main man, but I can do it as well. Uh, and uh, they live down in Texas, so why didn't they stop uh, all of these hurricanes that were affecting Houston and then over in Florida. But anyhow, a few years ago, Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, along with John and Carol Arnott, who were the co-pastors of the Vineyard Church in Toronto, where the so-called Toronto Blessing happened, they went for lunch with Pope Francis in the Vatican. And when Copeland came back, he stood up at a meeting in America and he said, the protest is over. Well, it may be over for him, but it's not over for those who truly are God's people. Because the great gulf is still fixed between Rome's understanding of the gospel and the true biblical gospel. We believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, and to the glory of God alone. 
and Rome still rejects all of those solas. Why should we rejoice in the Reformation? Well, it basically brought great freedom to people who were in bondage to the Church of Rome. And these so-called liberal humanists who want to take us back to Rome, I think of Paul's letter to the Galatians again, they said, they stand fast therefore in the liberty with which Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. These ecumenists want to take us into the bondage that Rome has on its people. But we who are born again have been set free, and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. I mentioned that the, uh, about the Judaizers, and the Church of Rome are basically the Judaizers of this age. Uh, a former Roman Catholic, William Webster, wrote a great little book called Salvation, the Bible, and Roman Catholicism. And in it, he listed 15 features of the Judaizers. And then in a column here, he has Roman Catholicism, and they basically mirror all of those 15 features of the Roman Catholic religion. And the, the Galatian letter really puts a, a stake or a cross through the heart of Rome's false gospel. But again, in recent years, you've had so-called gifted theologians coming up with a new perspective on Paul. And uh, I think of N.T. Wright, supposedly highly respected. He may have written some good things about history, if you like. But when it comes to theology, his new perspective is totally contrary to what uh, this uh, book teaches. Uh, he says, Paul's letter to the Galatians, it wasn't to do with soteriology, in other words, the doctrine of salvation. It was more to do with ecclesiology, church membership. Well, that is absolutely unscriptural nonsense. Because in Acts 15 and verse 1, Remember, this is talking about the Judaizers, and it says this, And certain men which came down through Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. It didn't say you can't join our church. It says you cannot be saved. And this new perspective is a rejection of the word of God, and it is an open door for ecumenism between so-called evangelicals and the church of Rome. So why should we rejoice in the Reformation? Well, it restored Christ as the only head of the church. Rome claims that the Pope is the visible head of the church, so they claim that there's two heads of the church. Well, no, there's only one, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. The Reformation made the so-called Roman Catholic priesthood redundant and irrelevant. Uh, in the Old Testament, if a person wanted forgiveness of sin and went up to the temple, a priest and they selected an animal, the priest would sacrifice that animal and pr uh, pronounce absolution. Well, that's exactly what happens in Roman Catholicism. The person goes up to the chapel and the priest offers the sacrifice at the Mass and says your sins are absolved and so on. So it's really just a perpetuation of the ironic priesthood under another name. When the Lord was dying on the cross, he was looking across to the Temple Mount where they were about to uh, sacrifice the Passover lamb. And of course he made the great declaration, it is finished. And of course it meant the work of redemption was finished. 
It also meant that, see what's going on over there? It's redundant. It is finished. There is no need for the type because I, the Lamb of God, have borne away the sin of the world. But Rome, through her priesthood, is simply perpetuating that old erotic priesthood. The Reformation opened up direct access to God for confession and forgiveness of sin. You didn't have to go to some earthly mediator and make your confession and allow him to pronounce uh, forgiveness of sins. No, we can come boldly to the throne of grace because Christ has opened up a new and living way. It also reclaimed assurance of full forgiveness and certainty of heaven. That's something no Roman Catholic is allowed to believe that they're truly forgiven, justified immediately, perfectly, and permanently. We're not allowed to believe that. It says in Trent, one of the anathemas, if anyone says that he will for certain, with an absolute and infallible certainty, have that great gift of perseverance even to the end, unless he shall have learned this by a special revelation, let him be anathema. So if a Roman Catholic goes to the priest and says, I've got great news, I've been saved, and I know that I'm going to heaven, the priest would have to say to him, well, I've bad news for you. You're going to hell, because that is the sin of presumption. And Rome categorizes sins between venial, which are slightly less important, and mortal, which take you straight to hell. And the sin of presumption is a mortal sin. It opened up the way to true and lasting peace through the one who promised peace in John chapter 14. But you will find that a Roman Catholic never possesses true and lasting peace. And I know former Roman Catholics who have talked about relations who have gone through all of the rituals and they're on their deathbed and they are petrified because they have absolutely no peace and no assurance. The Reformation exposed Mary's mediation, saints' intercession, the purchase of forgiveness by indulgences, sacramental salvation, self-atonement and expiation of purgatory. It showed them up for the lies that they are, and they are lies, and they are lies which condemn people to a lost eternity. It restored sole authority to the scriptures and it banished tradition. The Reformation changed everything and Rome changed nothing. Going back to uh, Luther's uh, 95 Theses, earlier this year, I was privileged to speak at the funeral of the wife of a dear friend. Uh, the memorial was held in Charlotte, and uh, her name was Nancy Zins, her husband is Rob Zins. And, and Nancy was able to come up with some very pithy sayings and one of her pithy sayings was, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And I brought out that she was in full harmony with the Apostle Paul, who for him the main thing was Jesus Christ and him crucified. But in these 95 theses, Luther also had the main thing. He says this in number 62. The true treasure of the church is the holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. Uh, I have a little booklet which sets out all of these uh, 95 theses. And it refers to uh, a book that sort of brought together the writings of Luther later in his life. 
And uh, this is what it says, Luther's 95 Theses represent a state of transition from twilight to daylight. They reveal the mighty working of an earnest mind and conscience intensely occupied with the problem of sin, repentance and forgiveness, and struggling for emancipation from the fetters of tradition. They bring to light the personal experience of justification by faith and direct intercourse with Christ and the Gospel in opposition to an external system of churchly and priestly mediation and human merit. And that very much sums up the light that shone into Martin Luther. So what can I finish with? Well, I want to finish with just a couple of verses from two hymns. Jesus, the sinner's friend, we hide ourselves in thee. God looks upon thy sprinkled blood. It is our only plea. He sees thy spotless robe. It covers all our sin. The golden gates have welcomed thee, and we may enter in. Thou hast fulfilled the law, and we are justified. Ours is the blessing, thine the curse. We live, for thou hast died. And probably four of the most famous lines from a hymn by Horatius Bonner. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Paul wanted to be found in Christ, not having his own righteousness. And thanks to the Reformation, that great truth was rediscovered, that if you're saved and born again and justified, you are in Christ, you're covered by his righteousness. And that is how we are accepted by God, because we're in the Beloved. I trust that the Lord will have blessed you as we have considered the definition.